0: This information is subject to a disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Please ensure that you listen to the disclaimer and go to www.UBS.com for further information about UBS.
1: Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning into UBS Global Research Pod Hub, a channel that shares insights from economists, strategists, and equity analysts on the pivotal questions and events shaping today's markets. My name is Johnny Hughes, Head of Content Distribution at UBS. In this episode, we're going to be diving into our outlook for 2021. We'll be speaking about many factors, including COVID-19 vaccines and others that will impact the economy. I'm joined today by Aaron Captain, Chief Global Economist, and Barnu Buwaja, who is our Chief Strategist. We're going to dive straight in and I'm going to start with Aaron if I can. Aaron, perhaps you could offer some insights into the path of progress for the global economy over the next 12 months, and of course, the pivotal role that the vaccine will play.
2: Hi, good morning, uh, Johnny. Yeah, everything hinges on the vaccine and the virus. I would say for the economy near term, it's more the virus, for the markets, it's probably more the vaccine. Um, What we're assuming is that uh, because of the rollout of the vaccines, we're gonna get a material drop in the virus count in the second half of Uh, 2021 Uh, and that's when we basically have penciled in an accelerated private sector recovery so until then it's a little bit of a slog um, to um, uh, to keep the economy going so we've had a quick rebound in the third quarter as countries emerge from lockdown Uh, we're now really running out of that momentum particularly in europe where we're sort of back in renewed lockdown so we actually think we might contract again uh, and of course, the U.S. itself is pretty uncertain because they have their own uh, virus issues to contend with. So I think the first half of the year is a little bit murky. But by the time we get to the second half of the year, uh, the economy should uh, should really be recovering, provided that virus count starts to um, starts to go down. And so what we'll then start to see, I think, is a shift back from people currently spending most of their money on goods and trade and things that are low, uh, low contacts. And then in the second half of the year, we'll see some of that money shift back to services, which is actually the bigger part of the economy. And that's when you can expect to hopefully see things like restaurants and travel and entertainment sort of start to uh, recover. But I think it's going to take a while. So, if you know, China is is the country that probably had the virus under control the earliest. And only last month did we see restaurant sales, cinema ticket sales, try to get back to pre-COVID level. So um, um, so I think we got a ways ahead of us.
1: Okay, that's great. And a good point to bring in uh, Barno, I think, because if you look at particularly uh, aspects of risk markets, one could assume, Barno, we're already looking forward and discounting a fair degree of recovery into 2021. How much of that do you feel is, is sustainable?
3: Uh, hey, Johnny, how are you doing? Um, look, we do think that a lot is already being priced. So when you look at Um, We have a simple model that looks across credit, bonds, FX, uh, and equities and tries to back out from that what the market's already pricing in in terms of global growth. And we find currently the market's pricing in about 4.2% global growth, which is about a standard deviation higher than the long-term average of global growth. But given the degree of recovery we are speaking about over the next 12 and 24 months, our focus and strategy are actually above consensus in terms of the earnings expectations, both for 2021 and also for 2022. And given that financial conditions are going to be extremely loose through this time, you are going to see some backup in yields, but not a huge move in yields. We think that this is still a reasonably constructive setup for equity markets, not least because people will be making portfolio allocation choices between fixed income and equities and as fixed income doesn't offer strong returns or diversification, people would be forced to a certain degree into equity. So we do think decent equity returns, these could be quite front loaded, especially across the world. They could be quite front loaded and then longer term, the earning strength in the S&P, I think, is more likely than not to come through. So a pretty optimistic setup for equity markets in particular
1: thanks, Barney. Okay, so the central banks have been extremely powerful in expanding their balance sheets this year. We've had a tremendous amount of fiscal support from governments. So we're looking at a cyclical recovery. Aaron, surely there's inflation coming in the next twelve to eighteen months.
2: yeah, it's it's um, you know it's interesting. we We had the exact same debates in two thousand and nine and ten after the the global financial crisis. so uh, and and we saw very similar things. So we had a lot of liquidity creation. Uh, and there was sort of this belief that that liquidity was going to get uh, converted into loans and and generate demand, and and we we never got there. So, the last ten years, central banks have really kitchen-sinked, I think, trying to get inflation back to target. Most have not succeeded. Uh, so, on average, over the last decade, central banks have actually failed to hit their inflation target. And it was only when they got. Right Right before Covid um, came upon us, um, we were sort of back at full employment levels, and even then we really didn't see much inflation. So the argument that people now make for expecting some inflation uh, are some of the same ones as ten years ago. So you know even more liquidity creation by central banks. So the central banks this year, for instance, have injected uh, roughly ten and a half trillion into the global economy. So an extraordinary amount of liquidity. The second argument is we're going to have higher fiscal deficits for longer, so that should generate some uh, demand relative to not having those higher deficits, and, and then there's a belief that because of the pandemic we're going to see more onshoring and and maybe there's some supply chain disruption, uh, and we just don't believe any of those arguments. So and I'll, I'll just very quickly go through them. So so first you know big picture point is that you know despite the markets being where they are, we're still in the midst of an enormous output gap. So the um, enormous amounts of slack in the global economy so about four percent of global GDP and in that environment with labor markets as damaged as they are it is really difficult to generate wage pressure and so you first need to close that output gap. that is probably going to take until something like 2023-24 so that's a long long time away just to get back to something that looks more like 2018-19. Then the second thing is, you know, that liquidity that the central banks are creating and injecting into the system to effectively normalize markets, that's not being converted into loans. The, the banks have, by and large, stopped lending in the middle of 2020. There was a surge of lending early in the crisis when corporates had to draw down on liquidity lines and they needed working capital. Uh, but since then, it's it's been a repeat of, of all sort of past recessions that when credit risk goes up, uh, the banks become more cautious and 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 the loan growth basically sort of stalls. And, and that's what we're seeing. So that may change, but you know if it does change, that just means you you close that that output gap, you eliminate that slack a little bit more quickly. and and you're really not yet then in the phase of generating inflation. And then the deficits, you know, I, I agree that deficits are going to be contractionary. So we've had an extraordinary amount of stimulus this year, which is going to have to be unwound. So so next year, we think about half of the stimulus is going to be unwound. And that is actually near term a drag uh, on inflation, not uh, not a boost. And then the onshoring point, you know, that's an interesting one because there are some really interesting examples of, of things that we haven't seen in a very long time. So I'll give you one example. So um, there are shortages of, of very specific goods related to this pandemic. So for instance, used cars. So in the US, uh, we had two months in a row where the prices of used cars went up by the most in 50 years, two months in a row. And that's because people don't want to use public transport, and they want to buy cars, and there was a shortage near term. Now, those shortages actually get cleared quite quickly. In the last um, month of data, we've already sort of seen those shortages clear, and the prices came way back down. But there are examples of that. The problem is, there are very few examples of that. So if you really go searching for items where quantities decreased and prices went up, so evidence of, of supply shortages, uh, you find very, very little. And so for all those reasons, uh, we think it's underlying inflation really probably you need until 2024, 2025 before you start to get back to central bank targets.
1: Okay, great. Thanks, thanks, Aaron. So just over to Barney then, it sounds like yields um, on the back of that discussion are going to be relatively contained from here. How does that fit into this cyclical view that, um, that you suggested early on in this uh, in this recording? Are we looking for signals here for uh, how sustained this this cyclical performance may be?
3: Yep. I think what we should do, uh, Johnny, is to probably break down yields into real yields and inflation break-evens. Um, now, real yields are really important because uh, as real yields have come down, equity market valuations have gone up. And that's been the pattern over the last six months. Uh, we think that real yields are close to bottoming. Perhaps another 15, 20 basis points further from here, we think we're likely to see real yields bottom. And that also means that we're not looking for valuations as the key driver of our forecasts for the next 12 and 24 months. We're looking for earning momentum as the key driver. Um, I think what's going to be most important for us to watch from here is exactly the debate you were having with Aaron, which is inflation expectations. If inflation expectations continue to rise from here, real yields can fall further and valuations can get another lift. But our base case also in strategy is that inflation expectations are likely to rise only just a little, another 15, 20 basis points. Just for context, you're already sitting in the U.S. 10-year inflation break even at about 175 compared to a cycle high of about 2.2. So you're not very far from cycle highs at a time when, as you folks were discussing, the output gap still remains extremely large. So the market is already pricing in a a reasonable amount of good news or normalcy on inflation. If inflation doesn't pick up aggressively from here, which is our base case view, and I think that's where we are uh, a little bit against consensus, although sometimes it's hard to understand what the consensus is, If inflation doesn't pick up aggressively from here, then before long, the market will once again revert to the kind of investment that it knows and understands well over the last five years, which is growth. Low real yields, uh, low nominal yields, inflation break evens pick up just a little bit. Um, And in that sort of a world, people will not be rotating into value aggressively. Going into cyclicals, I think as we have found out this year is not exactly the same thing. So there is a big gap between cyclicals and value and I would argue, small caps. Um, So people will be looking to uh, come back to the kind of investment patterns that they're more familiar with, which is good quality companies within growth, but they will still want, at a time when the output gap is slowly closing with growth improving, even without inflation coming, they would still want cyclical exposure.
1: Okay, understood. Thank you, Barnes. So there's two other major macro topics I'd love to hit on: the dollar and uh, and then China. Uh, but just squeezing in between that, uh, there's an interesting piece in the outlook, I believe, Aaron, on housing. Maybe you could flesh out what's unique about uh, housing in this particular cycle.
2: Yeah. So there's a famous uh, academic paper that was presented at the 2007 Jackson Hole uh, conference that basically, you know, states that every recession is basically about housing, and this is for the U.S. and and what's interesting is housing, of course, has nothing to do with this pandemic. It had nothing to do with getting into this pandemic, um, but it appears to be having everything to do with getting out of it. So, um, if you And it's not just the U.S. So for the U.S., we've seen some really strong data uh, come through, and, and it doesn't sort of matter what housing indicator you look at, but it just seems to be booming. Uh, but that's actually something that's happening globally. And, and, of course, what's behind that is that housing... Is the uh, single most cyclical and most interest-sensitive sector in the economy, and and we've had a massive decline in in uh, in interest rates, and in, in, and accommodation has been stepped up, and so housing is very sensitive to that, and so you know you can calculate what that does to uh, residential investment, for instance, and we think it's been lifted by something like eight percentage points in the second half of this year, thanks to the central banks. And and so what you're seeing when you look at all the consumption and investment components, it's housing that is the first one to turn and is now accelerating us out uh, into this recovery.
1: Thank you. Very interesting, Aaron. That's great. Uh, just on to the US dollar then. Uh, it's been a one-way street for the dollar and for, for dollar-based assets for a number of years. Unsure who wants to take this one on? Maybe Barna would start things off?
3: Sure. So we do think that the dollar is likely to weaken um, in the coming quarters and we actually think that the dollar may have turned uh, over the medium term as well. And that's quite interesting because in the early part of the dollar downturn, uh, let's call it the phase one, the first two to three years is when you see the biggest decline in the dollar. This time we think the decline in the dollar is likely to come primarily against developed market currencies if you take a longer term view here and now. Uh, As emerging market equities are likely to do better than the S&P over the coming months and perhaps one or two quarters, you can actually see some catch up from emerging market currencies as well. But if you speak slightly longer term horizon, then that's the time that we want to be thinking about the euro and the sterling more than we want to be thinking about emerging market currencies that carry in emerging market currencies is, is low enough and growth rates relative to developed market currencies as developed market economies are likely to land at levels low enough that capital coming back is going to be quite difficult to the same degree. So we're not expecting mean reversion out there. Uh, and, and that's why things like the Euro yen uh, in the near term, potentially gold, uh, remain some of the things that I think benefit from dollar downside. So this may not be as large a dollar down cycle as some of the previous ones, given that things like the renminbi and the bulk of emerging market currency is, is actually likely to lag behind. It's going to appreciate, but not nearly to the same degree as some of the developed market currencies like the euro and the sterling
2: yeah and i mean i think the only thing i'd add to that is so so i think there's a structural sort of feature to that dollar cycle and and there's sort of a temporary one and and the temporary one i think is this big portfolio rebalancing so if if you look at what happened to flows this year we've obviously seen markets go up and if all you do is look at headline indices across the world you you, know, you, you would probably not come away with the conclusion that um, historical amounts of money have come out of a lot of risk assets. And and that's actually what's happened. And so a lot of the, you know, most of our institutional investor base is um, is, is dollar based. And that's sort of the, the accounting currency, it's the funding currency. A lot of the risk off early in the year was associated with selling of foreign assets, which were converted back into dollars. And and that money is basically sitting on, on bank balance sheets in uh, in the accounts of the non-financial, non-bank sector, um, and so what tends to happen as um, as economies recover from recession, uh, that money gets redeployed, and we're sort of going into that phase now where it's been a little bit murky, you know, what the outlook is, and 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 you know whether we're going to double dip or whether we're going to have a clean recovery. But but certainly, as it becomes clear with the vaccine that the recovery is going to be quite strong. Uh, we're going to see all that capital that's sitting on the sideline uh, redeployed, and it is in the trillions. So we've been sort of aggregating uh, balance sheets of, you know, what, what, do, what do we think the sort of average portfolio looks like now compared to what it looked like um, pre-COVID and what it's going to look like post-vaccine. And there's easily... You know, four to five trillion in uh, in cash that needs to be redeployed, and and so that is going to go back into the global economy and effectively drive that dollar weakness because it's going to be a lot of dollar selling involved in them buying foreign currency assets. So that's the that's the near term factor that gives you that front loaded, I think, weakness. The structural feature, I think, is just the, um, you know, if you go back to what the world looked like pre COVID, um, the dollar was almost like a high yielding safe haven. Uh, and that's no longer the case. So I think, with with the Fed's shift to average inflation targeting, uh, with all central banks having rates very low, those rate differentials become le- much less of a factor. I think in driving uh, relative currency performance. And so, you know, the dollar will perpetually be; it won't have that yield advantage basically to uh, to support it. And then you become much more vulnerable to uh, to deficits, and and the U.S. is going to have one of the one of the larger twin deficits in the world, which will probably weigh in the currency as well. So, so all these factors seem to be coming together uh, to sort of set us up for that dollar cycle that Banu was talking about.
1: OK, good stuff. Thanks, guys. Let's transition to our last talking point today, China. And Barna, you touched on the uh, the currency briefly. Hugely important in terms of influence geopolitically and from a growth perspective and first in and first out of uh, this particular cycle. Perhaps some insights as to how China can continue to influence and impart growth across uh, the global economy. Aaron first, maybe
2: sure so we have what looks to be a um, you know a very high forecast for china for next year a little over eight percent growth now that's a little bit of um, of an illusion and about is going to roll his eyes when i say this but there's a, there's a statistical carryover so basically what that means is that when you have as much volatility and growth as we've had this year uh, you carry a lot of that momentum of the recovery into next year so actually the the underlying growth rate for China is between five and six. It's not eight. Eight's going to be the headline number. Five and six is what the run rate is, and we think five to six is sort of consistent with um, uh, with China's potential growth now. So we've we've we're going to see a lot of rotation within the Chinese economy. Where this year it was all about um, public sector stimulus. So. Um, getting the banks to lend. There was a lot of uh, infrastructure spending. There was a lot of fiscal stimulus. Next year, that's going to unwind, but it's going to be replaced by um, additional consumer strength. We think exports are going to hold up very well as as the global um, uh, economy recovers. Uh, and so we're going to have a lot of rotation and settle uh, you know around something that I think is a little bit below pre-crisis uh, levels. I think the important thing for for markets is going to be that that compositional change, has different degrees of import intensity and spillover. So it tends to be the case, for instance, right now, that when you're spending a lot of money on, uh, on the property sector and on infrastructure, that is relatively commodity intensive. So we may be going into a phase where you get less support from that because it's much more about Chinese citizens spending on domestic services, which has... As different imports content may may also be import intensive, but it certainly is less commodity intensive, and so so I think it's it's a little complicated, but but uh, by and large, you know, China is uh, is looking we think very healthy going into next year.
3: Yeah, and I just add to that, I think this point about the texture of of Chinese growth is crucial, right? Because um, next year we're looking for fixed asset investment somewhere around four to five percent, which is not very high by historical standards. We actually think property sales not um, not by accident, but by design, because the government is going to sort of tighten regulations there. Property sales are going to be quite weak. Property investment is going to be quite weak. And the reason we are focusing on this sector, and I think Arnold also alluded to this, was because this is the most import-thirsty sector. That's spoken in economics terms, but in market terms, what that basically means is that that's the sector which gives you the highest EPS growth in Australia in Europe. So that's the sector that influences markets across the world. Chinese consumption is less import-intensive, and and that's what we're expecting is going to do extremely well next year. We think this is going to be a consumption-driven recovery. So I think the key message is that when you want to play china you no longer play china through the rest of the world you play china through china one thing that i think we should pay close attention to and i think could be a downward risk for uh, markets more more generally is the degree of credit impulse coming from china so this year in fact even before this year last year china had already started loosening its credit um, credit measures and total social financing had begun to rise in q4 of 2019 And through the course of this year, credit in China measured by total social financing has increased by about, you know, at an annualized rate of between 30 to 40% of GDP. Uh, Next year, we think this number is going to be much lower and the credit impulse actually goes down negative starting Q1. Uh, And typically when that happens, it's hard to see. And I go back to something we've discussed earlier, inflation expectations across the world picking up. Commodity prices is one key channel here. And this is why I think especially for Rotation. What happens to the Chinese credit impulse is, is extremely important. As the Chinese credit impulse becomes negative, the rotation of value becomes that much less sustainable in in our view, and that's why we think of that rotation, particularly that rotation, as uh, more temporary rather than rather than permanent. So I think China itself will be
1: fine. Guys, thank you very much. I think we could continue for hours, but I'm going to draw things to a close here today. So once again, thanks to Aaron Captain, Chief Global Economist, and Barnaby Wager, Chief Strategist, for offering us insights into their 2021 outlook for uh, for UBS. My name is Johnny Hughes, and thank you very much for visiting the UBS Global Research Pod Hub. Do tune in again for more investment insights.
0: This content has been prepared by UBS AG, its subsidiaries, and or affiliates, and is purely informational in nature. It is not investment research and does not contain an investment recommendation nor investment or professional advice. It is not an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity, and you should seek your own financial, tax, and legal advice before engaging in any such activity. UBS has no responsibility to you in relation to this content. It has no regard to your personal circumstances or investment objectives, and receiving it does not imply any form of client relationship with UBS for any legal, regulatory, or tax purpose. This content is not intended for distribution into any jurisdiction where to do so would be contrary to law or regulation. UBS does not accept any liability over the content of such material or reliance upon any information contained herein. The views and opinions expressed by any guest speaker or third party are not those of UBS. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over any such views and opinions expressed by such persons. This content is the valuable intellectual property of UBS, and UBS specifically prohibits the redistribution of it in whole or in part without its prior written permission. Copyright UBS 2020. The key symbol and UBS are among the registered and unregistered trademarks of UBS. All rights reserved.